Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Dangerous Thoughts here on Unsafe Space. I'm Carter Laren, your host. Uh, I guess we should start off right away with Super Chats because Richard Petz has already sent a Super Chat. He's keeping us in business. He says, um, judging from the backdrop, this is going to be a black pill episode. I don't know. Maybe a little... <laughs> Maybe a little bit. I guess I guess so. It is for those listening, it is a woman holding up the tarot card of death. So that's not exactly uh sunshine and rainbows. But hey, what can you do? Um speaking of Richard Petz, he will be hosting our next book club on November twenty-seventh. It is the girl with the dragon tattoo. You can go to unsafespace.com and click on the book club link, and there is you can buy it from there if you want. It's just an Amazon affiliate deal. So you can go anywhere you want to get it. Uh, and I think you have plenty of time to read it between now and November 27th. So go ahead and do that. And if you want to join Book Club, let us know either in Discord. If you're uh, a paid supporter, you're in our Discord. Or uh, just send an email to speak at unsafespace.com. And we will try and get you on the list to join the discussion about the girl with the dragon tattoo. Uh... I said this last week, but I'm just going to remind some people. We are in the midst of a slow transition at Unsafe Space uh, away from video towards more written content. That doesn't mean video is going to go away completely, but uh, we are changing. And that is led by, pr predominantly driv driven by my desire to write rather than do videos. I don't really like videos. But... Uh, as part of that transition, what I've done is I've been writing articles uh, at least once a week for Dangerous Thoughts, and then I just use the article for this show, walk through it, and we have a chat with it, uh, chat about it live as I walk through the article. Um, we also started, for those of you who missed it, we also started a weekly um, newsletter kind of thing. It's called The Abstract. It comes out on Saturday mornings early saturday morning if you're on uh the west coast a more reasonable time although still still early if you're on the east coast still the morning if you're in london but barely uh and if you want to check that out you can go to unsafespace.com there's a link at the top that uh where you can view the first issue and sign up if you want so and some of that stuff isn't available on the website or uh or through our Substack. it's just in the newsletter so uh, let's see, what else do I have to go through? I think that's it. Um, if you are watching, I appreciate those of you who choose to watch on Rumble. Not that I don't appreciate those of you on YouTube. Uh, YouTube <clears throat> super chats are easier for us. Uh, but Rumble, we are trying to, uh, we, Rumble, we are trying to migrate to Rumble a little bit more because YouTube does hate us. Uh, Raphael says, I have a rebel hairstyle tonight. <clears throat> Do I? Maybe. I just, you know what I did, Raphael? I just, uh, I've been so uptight, not uptight, but I've been so concerned about making sure my hair was cut, although I was pretty bad at it anyway. I would, it would get out of hand. I just decided, I just stopped. I don't know when I'm going to decide to cut my hair again, but I just wanted to see what happens. It's gotten really, it doesn't look as bad right now as it normally is, but it's pretty bad. Okay. Uh, I don't want to talk about my hair anymore, so I think we're done. I will pause for conversation and chat if people have comments, and I'm going to try and keep pay attention to both Rumble and YouTube. So, hey, fluffy little clouds on Rumble, who says he is also Mr. Drummer. People have different names. It's hard to keep track of, but they've got different names depending on platforms. <laughs> Obedient to you says business in front, party in the back. It is developing into a mullet a little bit, although it also hangs like if I let it down, it, it covers my eye. It's getting pretty bad in the front. It's a mess. Okay, no more hair. Let's walk through my latest article, and uh, which is kind of, I guess it's a draft. I, I want to say it's draft, but it's, it's mostly done. There might be a few edits. It's not on Substack yet, but it is up on unsafespace.com. Here it is. It's called Loss and Damage at COP27. We'll talk about what that's an acronym for. Uh Again, as I mentioned, there's links to Book Club at the top, and you can read the Unsafe Space abstract. I'll click on it for you. Uh, looks like this. There it is. 
I guess that doesn't work because it opened in a new tab, so you didn't see it anyway. All right. This article is motivated by um, this week there is a climate conference in Egypt. It's actually, actually, let me scroll down because I don't remember the exact name. It's called, <laughs> it's the 27th conference on the, this is the official name, 27th conference on the parties of the United Nations Climate Change Conference. Yes, the word conference is in the title twice, uh, but they call it COP27 because that's easier. So all the nations are there, um, mostly. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny because it's a, basically a Marxist agenda. And the only two nations, the only two major nations not attending are China and Russia, <laughs> which is this odd paradox. <laughs> It's the rest of the world's Marxist, but China and Russia are like, this is a bridge too far. I can't, this is too much for me. No, I'm staying away. Um, so yeah, so this conference is going on and, you know, almost every, almost every, uh, country's there. And obviously this is on the back of, you know, we had our COVID, we had our COVID, uh, COVID compliance agenda rolled out. People got numbed to, being expected to be compliant and obey authorities. And if you'll notice, and my impetus for writing this actually wasn't the conference, it was that I started to notice all this stuff in the news. It seems like it's this constant barrage lately of climate disasters, correctly called weather disasters, by the way, but, uh, you know, floods, fires, uh, hurricanes, and all of the coverage is about not just that the disasters are happening and that people are suffering. Obviously, that's a part of it. But that's now linked to climate change every time there's a report. Every single time, it's climate change, climate change, climate change, climate change. It's a disaster, climate change. In fact, climate change has been linked to <coughs> – I'm not kidding. I should have put a – reference to this in here, but you can find it online yourself. It's not that hard. Climate change has been linked to the border crisis at the U.S. southern border. Inflation. People getting angrier on Twitter. And racism. So basically everything is climate change. They're really hammering this message home. The propaganda machine is working overtime to deliver this climate change message and and assure us how dire the situation is and how we need to act immediately and so <laughs> along comes on its noble steed the lizard people from the united nations so they have this conference going on it's in egypt as i mentioned and all the rage at the conference this year is this concept of loss and damage. There's a lot of negotiation and discuss, discussion about loss and damage, which is reparations. I, I almost hesitate to use the word reparations, but that's how they refer to it, which is reparations from wealthy nations to poor nations. That's what it is. And, of course, the poor nations think that loss and damage payments, maybe a loss and damage fund, very exciting, good idea. And the wealthy nations don't want to say that's a bad idea because uh, they have no spine or even understanding of the <laughs> logical fallacies involved. And so, th but they're trying to, like, say that they like it, but provide enough wiggle room to make sure they can get out of actually paying too much. So here's the basic narrative. I want to go over the basic narrative of what loss and damage is, um, what, why, why loss and damage is being uh, justified, basically, um, and how they are linking weather events to climate change. So let's let's just walk through the narrative. It goes the narrative goes something like this: There are poor countries, and there are rich countries. Fair enough. In the poor countries, 
they suffer, they are suffering from massive weather-related disasters. Um, just, you know, the flooding in Pakistan is a great example. So they're hurting from these climate-related disasters. Also true. Uh, then enters this sleight of hand, which we'll talk about a little bit, which is weather is, is a result of anthropogenic climate change. That's the, that's a little magic trick that happens. And then, well, because rich nations participate in fossil fuel burning and therefore carbon emissions to a greater extent, they're the ones responsible for the poor people suffering in nations like Pakistan over extreme weather events. And therefore reparations are in order. That's the basic, that's the basic argument. Richard Pett says lizard people are cold blooded, which means they have increased sensitivity to hot cold. Makes sense now. That's it. You know what? I hadn't thought of that point, Richard. It's an excellent point. Uh, variations in in weather do affect lizard people much worse than the rest of us. Okay. So let's talk about what this loss and damage thing is. Um, before we do, I want to talk about how they, they package this kind of stuff up in a patina of reason of rational thought and the way they do it, especially with climate, but they also did this with, with COVID was to pull out the word science and plaster it all over, all over everything they were doing. And of course, science implies, well, it's reasonable and rational. If science is involved, it must be rational. Uh, and you're not an expert on the science. So, how could you possibly go against this? It's it's completely rational because it's scientific. Now, of course, uh, one thing I want to point out is that reason, I've said this before on this show, but it's been a while. Reason is not the same as logical deduction. Reason begins and ends with observation. You observe the world around you, you induce premises. You say, oh, I see that everyone in history appears to have died and every animal appears to have died. I will draw a generalization from that. And that generalization is all men are mortal, right? And then you say, oh, maybe another observation. I've been hanging around Socrates a lot. Uh, from every, you know, he seems like a man, <laughs> every, every indication I see he's doing all the, even the unpleasant things that Greek men did. Uh, he's a man. Okay. So that's your second premise. Then you get to use deduction. Then you get to say all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore Socrates is mortal. But then, then you have to check you have to reobserve reality and check your conclusions against reality. And that's the part where that science is generally pretty good at. It you they it makes a prediction and then tests that against uh against reality. And of course, healthy science involves uh the existence of, of a null hypothesis so that there's you know there is a way to collect evidence to disprove a particular theory. So that's what reason is. When you start with premises that are not related to reality or just wrong or unchecked, and then you rigorously use reason to apply them, or I'll say you use logic, deductive logic to apply them, and then at the end, you don't bother checking whether those conclusions correspond to reality, you can't claim that what you've done is reasoned. That's not a reasoning process. It's not rational. And you know, one thing that disappoints me about a lot of purported defenders of capitalism is they concede the high ground of reason to Marx. They'll say things like, oh, well, Marxism is just, uh, it's hyper-rational. That's the problem. 
it's just it's just based on cold reason and science. That's the problem with Marxism. No, it's not at all. The problem with Marxism is it starts with bad conclusions. It ignores the source of wealth, for example, which is the the human mind. Um, it ignores individual sovereignty as an ethical requirement. I mean, it starts with some bad ideas, and then it applies some some deduction based on those bad ideas to get to killing 100 million people last century. And of course, if it was if if, if Marxism was hyper rational, even if it started with bad premises, the Marxists after the the disaster of the 20th century would have turned around and and checked their conclusions and checked reality and said, "Oh, maybe we ought to reexamine these premises because we killed a lot of people pushing this crap." But they don't do that. They just double down, repackage the premises, and try and foist them upon a population again. So none of that is rational. That's not reason. And if you let them take the high ground of reason and say, well, you know, it's just not practical. It's just hyper-rational. And there's some there's some other je ne sais quoi about humans that's not captured in Marxism. You're a loser. You're failing the fight. You're not the kind of defender we need of capitalism. <sighs> They do the same. The reason I'm bringing that Marxism up as an example is it's bothered me, but they're doing a similar kind of thing here with climate stuff. They will often just start with bad premises and then and then deduce from them and never go back and examine the premises. Richard says, okay, here you go. Another $10. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Rich, he is keeping us in business. Um, he's reading Mises's the ultimate foundation of economic science right now dovetails into what you're saying. Mises is amazing. And uh, I think human action is probably, if you can get through it, it's pretty dense. But human action is probably uh, the most delicious rebuttal of Marx and uh, Marxist economics that I could that I could imagine. It's really well done. And Mises was was amazing. All right, so back to this stuff. Let's look at um, let's look at how let's let's follow their arguments here, and let's just look at it each step of the way, and we'll examine their premises, and we'll also examine the sleight of hand. So, um, the first premise is there's rich countries and there's poor countries. Yeah, sure, that is true. Uh, that's that's absolutely true, and. If you actually cared about humans before you marched on to the next uh, point in your argument, you might stop to wonder, hey, why is that? Why are some countries fabulously wealthy and some countries destitute? Why is that? Now, mostly, most of the leftists don't even stop to ask that question. They just drive right by. On to the next thing. Well, this is the way it is. Some rich, some poor. Next. Right? But if you care about people, you stop and ask the question. Um, when they do stop and ask the question, which has been happening more as um, as the kind of critical theorists <laughs> take over the leftists uh, or take over leftism more, um, when they do bother to stop, they stop and say, oh, well, Rich countries got rich from from exploiting the poor, from pilfering all of their loot, which I would say is an infantile assertion, but it makes fun of that. That's not fair to infants. Uh, you can't get rich stealing from poor people like you don't. I mean, unless there's orders of magnitude more poor people, I guess, theoretically, but you can't rich nations can't raid non-existent wealth and become fabulously wealthy. That's can't have happened. There was no, there was no historical, you know, industrial technological revolution, some, some Shangri-La in poor countries prior to the industrial revolution in the West. And they just sailed their ships over there and stole their wealth and came back. That's not what happened at all. You also can't get wealthy from slavery, which I know maybe is controversial, but you know, some people think, oh, well, of course you get wealthy from slavery. It's free labor. Slavery has been a part of human existence since humans were humans, actually probably before we were humans. Uh, because 
my recollection, I, don't, I might not be completely correct about this, so I, I could be wrong, but my recollection is other primates actually uh, can kind of, when they conquer other tribes, can kind of, uh, I'll put enslave in quotes, but absorb the the conquerees into the lowest hierarchy of their social structure, which is a form of enslavement. Um, so it's been around forever. Even so, ancient civilizations didn't invent iPhones. So something's the slavery didn't get you there. Something's different about the West. And of course, the answer to what that is, which we're not going to get into right now, but is, hey, individual sovereignty, private property, capitalism, yay, that's the answer. Um, and by the way, just at that first premise, if you stop and examine it honestly like that and you say, oh, it turns out this is the difference between these, these nations. Um, some of them introduced more free markets. I mean, even China, you can you can even throw China into the free market side because although they are authoritarian, the way that Deng Xiaoping has built China's wealth and turned it from a, well, he's dead, but the way that he turned it from a, what Trump would have called the shithole country into a an economic powerhouse, even if it's a dystopian powerhouse, was to open up the economy, to give more freedom. He, he had economic development zones and opened up the economy and had a pseudo-free economy that allowed people to have some semblance of private ownership, kinda, until you got too big, and allowed for that economic activity. So even China didn't use communism to get where it is. All right, so that's their premise one. Rich nations, poor nations. True premise, uh, abject failure on <laughs> evaluating why the hell that premise is and what it might mean for any political action you would take thereafter. The second premise here is, hey, bad weather blows. <laughs> Hurricanes suck, flooding blows, it's horrible. Also true. That's a that's a true statement. Now, there's a bunch of stuff. One of the things I didn't go into the, in this article was um, there are a lot of specious arguments, which I'm gonna I can pull up this this life powered um, website. This is an interesting article if you're interested in why or if you're interested in the truth behind a lot of these claims that weather is more severe or there's more droughts or hurricanes are more intense or whatever. Um, they go into accumulated cyclone energy index. They'll go into the number of hurricanes. They're focused on the U.S. primarily, but it does debunk these claims that like, well, weather is more intense because of climate change. No, it's not. It's not more intense. That's just a lie. So I didn't talk about that in here. I just linked to it. Um, so there's that. But the, aside from that, there's there's two kind of major arguments here for why uh, you know, behind this bad weather is is, is horrible for for everyone, uh, including third world countries. Uh, one of one of the arguments is it's killing a lot of people. Now, the evidence that we, is proffered for this is anecdotal, predominantly. I mean, there's numbers attached to it, but it's things like the recent flooding in Pakistan. Right, seventeen hundred people displaced, or sorry, killed 30, 33 million, I think, displaced. Huge numbers. Sounds horrible. It's impactful. Oh, my God. 1,700 people killed in Pakistan. This is horrible. So that's one of the things that's thrown out there. Um, and the other thing that's thrown out is economic damage. Again, with Pakistan, $40 billion of estimated damage as a result. Those sound really bad. They scare people. And, and coupled with the lie that there's a lot of evidence for more extreme weather uh, existing, uh, it really drives home this idea that the weather that is causing it's getting worse. It's worse and worse and worse, which of course implies that climate change is responsible. Why would it be getting worse? I guess it's because of climate change. So the problem with these two things is they are also, well, one is just not true. Uh, and the other one is horribly misleading. So, if you want to talk about climate-related deaths, you have to start with the snapshot of, hey, 
how's humankind doing with with respect to climate related deaths? I mean, you know, we've been people always talk about burning fossil fuels since the end of the industrial or the beginning of the industrial revolution and the end the beginning of last century. Um, hey, how are climate deaths doing? Here's how climate deaths are doing. Yeah, let me make this a little bit smaller so you can get it in the whole screen. Here's this is from uh, Jorn uh, Lomberg. It's sourced not from him, though. International Disaster Database is the source of this information. Global death risk from climate and non-climate catastrophes. This is your likelihood of dying as a result of a climate-related catastrophe. <laughs> Notice, possibly this is hard to measure through looking at it, it's more than a 99% drop in the likelihood of climate death from 1920 to 2018. It's an enormous drop. Way, way fewer people are dying today from climate-related disaster than were dying in 1920. Actually, that's true, but that's not what this graph says. That is true. Way fewer people are dying, even though the world's population has quadrupled. But in addition to fewer people dying, a smaller percentage of people, your likelihood of dying is is also much, much, much less, like 99% drop, which is what this graph is. This is your risk, your death risk. That's amazing. That's an amazing success. So yes, it's sad to read about people dying from flooding. And that is not an accurate representation of what's happening to humanity with respect to weather. It's just a lie, right? It's It's just as much of a lie if... You know, if I go write an article about, you know, one half Jewish, half Chinese dude who's a great basketball player and then conclude that, oh, my God, the Jews are taking over basketball. It's like, well, that's just not true. Right? Like this, that's I, I cherry picked and then used it to spin a narrative, which is utterly false. So um, just for saying that, YouTube will probably ban me now. He's talking about conspiracy theories. So this is a big deal. The other thing that they do is they do cost estimates. They say, this is how much it costs to uh, repair damage from climate change. And even the White House, here, even the White House released this. Uh, oh, that's not the White House one. Oops, is it? Oh, no, this is the other one. Uh, <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. I've got ahead of myself. Where's the White House link? Here. White House has a whole thing. Oh, look, look, look at the, oh, look, natural disasters are costing more. It's horrible. Okay. That's, that's the argument. Now, a couple caveats to this argument, which are conveniently ignored. One is, as it turns out, which is the second link that I clicked on before here, as it turns out, more and more people are moving to coastal regions. It's estimated that by 2025, now this is a little bit of an older, this is a 2003 report, so I don't know what numbers are up to date, but in, 20, in 2003, they were estimating that uh, 6 million people would be living by the coasts in 2025, that it would more than, that it would more than double, or approximately double from what, were, what was going on in 2003. When people migrate to the coasts, two things happen. One, it actually increases the likelihood that gate because the coastal areas, by the way, obviously are uh, have a higher likelihood of of being impacted by you know hurricanes and that kind of stuff. So two things happen. One, as people move to the coasts disproportionately, which they are, the world's population is disproportionately moving to coasts. So you can you can compound that with the the death likelihood data that we just saw how that's dropped it's even more impressive because more and more people are living in riskier areas like coasts. It's still dropped 99%. And of course, when people move to the coast, coastal areas, what else moves with them? Infrastructure, buildings, expensive infrastructure, stuff that when it gets damaged is more expensive. And we, you know, we did, Alex Epstein wrote a book called Fossil Future. We did a, it was a, one of the book clubs uh, selections a few months ago. And, you know, he makes the point that, look, what you really want to measure is 
the the percentage, the relative damage as a percentage of GDP, GDP or, or some metric that's measuring, well, how wealthy is this nation, right? If the nation gets 10 times richer over a, a period of time, and then you whine that, well, climate climate-related costs have grown 10x, that's zero growth proportionally. That's exactly what you'd expect with 10x growth. So um, you've got to compare it to GDP or some growth measure. And when you do that, as it turns out, uh, these wild claims about increased cost mostly evaporate. Now, that should not surprise you because you know, climate activists aren't known for being fiscally conservative. It should be suspicious that they're running around saying, oh, the cost is just too much to bear. That's It's just a, it's really a financial decision to pass my Green New Deal. Uh, it just, you know, the, the it might cost $10 trillion, but, you know, these other costs are just too much. And that's why they're not fiscally conservative. They're just trying to use that because they're hoping that you're fiscally conservative and go, oh, well, I don't want to pay more money. Yeah, no one wants to pay more money, but that's how life is. We have more stuff that gets hurt because we have more stuff, therefore we pay more money for it. The end. Now, one of the, I, I think this is funny, in, in a dark, sick, black pill kind of way, I guess. One of the, one of the things I think is funny is the New York Times did an article about COP27. It's like the other day, it just released. And in this article, they make this argument that they're making the argument basically for reparations for loss and loss and damage. They have this now. This is a very clunky graph, but this is the graph this or, or pictograph thing. This is the thing they have. I'm gonna. I guess I'll scroll out so you can kind of see it, and then I'll scroll back in because it's unreadable when I scroll out all the way. All right, so there it is. It's this It's this line. For people listening, it's this vertical line with some tiny dots at the top and uh, very wide, a bunch, a clusters of wide dots at the very bottom. The radius of the dot is correlated to, uh, I think, wealth or ability to i actually don't remember it's it's either wealth or ability to withstand weather and as is the and the other one is uh is is represented by the position on the chart let me look uh yeah more vulnerable countries are at the top less vulnerable countries are at the bottom so wealth is the the size of the bubble is the wealth and this is the argument they're making, right? They look, they they present this chart and they say, look, all these wealthy countries, higher income countries, they can deal with, with weather events. It's unfair because look at these poor countries down here. They can't deal with weather events as well. And they, they call out a few. Somalia is highly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, right? Uh, and of course they say, but has contributed only to a tiny fraction of global emissions. Right. It's it's also a tiny dot, which means it's poor. All right. And you work your way up to like US and Germany and you get you get bigger dots and, and better ability to deal. Now, this is used as an argument for reparations. But I see this and I think to myself, oh, if you care about helping people in poor countries, the answer is staring you in the face. If you want them to be able to survive floods and other climate disasters, which have happened throughout history, even if they were getting worse, they they do happen nevertheless. So surviving them would be nice. If you want them to be able to survive these things, what do you need to do? Well, apparently what you need to do is turn the small dots into big dots. You need to help them become wealthy. Wealth is a shield against dying from storms. That's what this chart tells me. It literally tells you how to answer the problem, how to solve the problem. This chart tells you how to solve the problem. You solve the problem by fixing the wealth gap. And I don't mean by taking away from the wealthy countries. I mean teaching the smaller countries, the poor countries, letting the poor countries acquire, accumulate wealth. 
moving Somalia from a tiny dot at the top to a giant dot. And when there's a giant dot, the weight of that wealth drags it down into the less vulnerable category down here, where it's perfectly fine dealing with storms. That's not how the New York Times saw it, but that was that's what I saw when I saw this. Now, especially given what we talked about earlier, if you wanted to help Somalia or any of the countries at the, you know, with the small the small diameters of wealth, if you wanted to help them, what might you do? Well, you might tell them about free markets and private property. <laughs> you might say, hey, um, individual rights matter. But the other thing you might do when it comes to energy is you might say, you know, you know what really helps leverage human productivity? Like instead of dragging your plow by hand through the mud, you know what really helps? An internal combustion engine, a two-stroke engine, or a tractor that operates on diesel or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, burning fossil fuels, uh, fossil fuels are really, really energy dense. Um, they're pretty great. It's how we got wealthy. You should get wealthy that way too. <laughs> Maybe you should burn some fossil fuels. How about a coal plant, Somalia? How about you use the power of fossil fuels to better your economy? Then you'll be able to deal with storms just like we do, right? But of course, that's not the, that's not the message they're given, right? Um, the message is kind of the opposite, actually. The message is, well, uh, <laughs> you're not spoiling the precious Mother Earth right now with your carbon emissions, so don't do that. Um, here, try unreliable wind and solar. We'll subsidize a little bit. Try, try unreliable wind and solar for a while, and you can always come us, to us for handouts for dealing with climate disasters. It's it's kind of condescending and a little bit colonialist. <laughs> Be like, oh, um, we don't actually want you to better yourselves. What we want is for you to adopt uh, crappy, low-density, high-cost, inefficient energy solutions that make us feel good. Um, and then, you know, there's a, there's a World Bank you can petition if you need to borrow some money. That's kind of the that's kind of the the strategy here. All right, so so they get to this they get to this. So th these are their arguments, right? There are poor countries and there's rich countries, true, and then there's weather disasters, which I've just explained um, how the weather disasters are over the impacts are overblown, but of course there are still weather disasters. Here comes here comes the abracadabra. There is a new field of climate science called climate attribution science. And it is, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing in an, like a train wreck kind of way. It's, it's, uh, it's like, it's like watching someone get away with a really bad magic trick and having the whole audience go, mm, that's very reasonable. Um, it, it's, it's, I can't believe it almost. Oh, B. Allen's here. Hey, B. Allen. Um, B. Allen says, I'm sure the author of the article is giving a large portion of his income to Somalia. <laughs> yes, I'm sure of that as well. He, probably he lives, you know, part-time in Somalia, uh, giving, giving his income away to people and helping them. And he probably also is pushing capitalism and explaining to them how the free markets work. Uh, okay, so what's wrong with climate attribution science is less about like what they do in terms of the actual science and more about their starting point. Remember we talked about reason and science beginning with observation and, you know, then you do your deduction and actually with science there's testing and blah, 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 but right. Then you do deduction at the end, you kind of test your conclusion. Climate attribution starts with the news, kind of literally starts with the news, 
right? It is, oh, what's going on in the world that's making headlines that is a devastating climate event? Pakistan. Okay, great. Floods in Pakistan. Now that we picked, a, you know, an exciting, sensationalized climate event where people are dying, <clears throat> now the question is, hey, can we demonstrate that it's related to anthropogenic climate change? Okay. <clears throat> Going in with a clear goal. <clears throat> then they proceed to, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to question the actual science that goes on in some of this. I mean, I did read a paper and I've got some questions, but I'm also not a climate scientist. So that's fine. So they go through this thing. <clears throat> they got their models and they got their graphs and they're showing this and that. And okay. And the end, they, even though they're kind of activist driven scientists, they're still, there's still some semblance of being a scientist. So they make statements like, well, we can't really, it's not quantifiable the role, but we're pretty sure there's a role that climate change played, but it's not quantifiable. But, but we're pretty certain that there's some role. That's that's the kind of statement that they make at the end, generally. Uh, sometimes they, they give like percentage, it could be as high as blank, but generally they, they've been like, oh, it's not quantifiable, but it seems like there's something there. Hmm. Okay, uh, of course, that then gets <laughs> filtered through the, uh, <laughs> what is it, what, what did uh, what did Alex Epstein call the knowledge system, I think. That gets filtered through the knowledge system, and it ends up in tweets, like this one from the prime minister, this is yesterday, this is from the prime minister of Pakistan, and by the way, there was an actual report. The report I'm talking about is a Pakistan flood report that came out. There's a 36-page report that came out. And he says, at high-level segment of COP27, I presented flood devastation in Pakistan as an example of what climate change can do to a country. I drew the attention of the global leaders to the need for bridging massive financial gaps, inclusion of loss and damage in the agenda. So it goes from a climate scientist saying, uh, yeah, there's probably some contribution here. Contribution, meaning one of many, many factors. Probably some contribution here, hard to quantify. Two, it's climate change's fault that Pakistan's flooding. Boom. This is, what the, this is how it gets distilled. It gets distilled into these kind of sound bites, picked up by media, talked about on CNN, and the average person goes, it's proven that climate change caused the floods in Pakistan. No, it's not proven. No, the science doesn't say that. And I'm going to get back to the, the science here for a moment. I said I wasn't going to criticize the method because I'm not qualified to criticize that, you know, to read the 36-page paper and figure out where they're, you know, they dropped a decimal point or made an error or whatever. But I can say the entire field is basically one big cherry pick because if you were trying to do an actual objective, honest evaluation of the impact of climate change on the world, you would have to also look at other areas of the world that might be doing better as a result of climate change. You would have to say, hey, this, this cold area here is a little bit warmer. Is the, is the, our crop yields up here now because there's a longer growing season. Hey, this other area now gets more rain than it didn't get before. Is that due to climate change? And is that good for, uh, you know, the arable land in any Hey, is this moderate temperature over here better for people? Are fewer people dying over here? There Maybe there were going to be floods over here before, but now there's not. Whatever. There are – they'll be the first to tell you the climate's very complex. Only experts can – fine, it's very complex. I'll, I'll agree. The climate's very complex. So stop only picking, stop looking at all of the worst things, finding how climate change is contributed, and then going, well, I've summed up the contribution of climate change to humankind. No, you haven't. You're not even looking at the possible benefits of a slightly warmer globe. Because by the way, our global temperature is nowhere near the historical highs. I mean, we're at a low, actually. 
if you like if you look at over long periods of history right we're at a low <laughs> so we're not like it's not like the earth can't be warmer there're plenty of times in earth's history when there was no ice cap so this isn't like we're not going to all burn up tomorrow if the climate's a little bit like what we have to ask ourselves is well, what's the overall effect? Maybe it does hurt people in Pakistan, but it helps people in Siberia or Canada can start growing stuff. I don't know. But that neither do they because they're not even looking. They're starting with CNN. They're going, oh, you know, what's pissing off CNN? Oh, what, what's the sensational story on CNN about climate deaths? Let's cover that and see if we can link it to climate change. <clears throat> That's not honest. That's not honest science. No matter, even if your methods are sound, it's not honest science. That's a sleight of hand. Richard Petz, another one from Richard Petz says, does, does a hail of bullets or bombs, quote, raining down on people in far off places count as climate change? If so, we'll need to adjust our data. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. In that case, if that's true, then, uh, Chicago's got a lot of climate change going on. Um, B. Allen says, oh, that was the one I read before. Thank you, B. Allen. Okay. So so they do this. Now, they also do that. I mean, the thing that I think is most egregious, egregious is along the lines of what I just said, but it's related to how they assign moral blame. So what they do is they say, <laughs> okay, uh, here are the negative impacts of climate change. Anthropogenic climate change. Here's the negative impacts. Uh, we know it, and, and we know that this is due to carbon emissions. And we know, obviously, that fossil fuels contribute largely to carbon emissions. So, uh, and, we, and we've already talked about rich countries burning more fossil fuels. Because that's how you get rich. Uh... So what we're going to do is we're going to assign blame for the <laughs> climate deaths, which we've, you know, our magic trick sleight of hand has now said that they're really, they're, you know, they're all climate deaths now instead of weather deaths. And we're going to ignore the decrease in deaths over time and the better uh, adaptability to climate that humans have had. We're just going to look at the downside, and we're going to assign the blame for the downside to the rich countries. Now, <laughs> Greg the Baritone says, we do know that climate change causes myocarditis. Yes. Uh, as long as it's not vaccines that cause it, Greg, it is climate change. Um, so you've got, by the way, we I don't know if you know, we have a U.S. special presidential envoy for climate. Now, that's a thing, and and our envoy is none other than John Kerry, uh, who really wants to be Al Gore, but isn't. And um, John Kerry, he, he he's kind of complaining about the, assigning all the blame by saying, well, we didn't know. Until the 80s, no one really knew uh, the devastating effects. So we got to start the clock in the 80s. And then if by that metric, hey, a lot of countries are, are guilty, just like us. Um, I, I think this is the wrong strategy. Uh, I think the right strategy is to say, hell yeah, we burned fossil fuels. Give us all the blame for fossil fuels. But if you're going to do that, we also get all of the credit for everything that fossil fuels have provided. All plastics, all of anything that uses energy cheaply. In fact, basically the entire modern world will take credit for that. We'll take credit for everything. Refrigeration, ours. Vaccines, the good ones, ours. Uh, I don't know, better medical advances, we'll take credit for that too. Higher standard of living, we'll take credit for that. Your iPhone, credit. Everything, credit. We'll take credit for everything. We'll take credit for everything beyond subsistence level farming of, let's say, you know, the 18th century. We'll and we'll take all the blame for the carbon impact. But we'll also take all the credit for everything. The reason that there are philanthropists who can send you boatloads of money, the reason that uh, you know we we can leverage human labor beyond the wildest dreams of people 200 years ago 
through machines that are powered by fossil fuels. We'll take uh, the reason that we have plastics everywhere cheaply, which are required for just about everything. I mean, look around you, everything's made of plastic. Go to a hospital, try and find things that aren't plastic in a hospital, right? We'll take credit for all of this and the blame for carbon emissions. That's the right attitude because you can't get blame without the credit for this. And what burning fossil fuels have done, increased life expectancy, made life better for everyone. That's what needs to happen. But instead, what happens is they say, well, there's a slight effect over here, which is by our own scientists' estimates, unquantifiable. This thing happened over here, and it's related to Greg the Baritone turning his car on too many times and driving around town. Uh, and he, so he had – he slightly contributed to some kind of – there's like a butterfly effect. He did something, and global warming went up. There's a little bit of global warming, and oh, my God, now monsoons. Uh, it's all Greg's fault. That's what they're doing. Not to pick on you, Greg the Baritone. Winky Wanky Woo wants me to admit the UK NHS made life better for people. Compared to what? Possibly. <laughs> but not compared to a free market, Winky. <laughs> uh, all right. So, look, I think if we're going to, if we owe, if fossil fuel burning first world nations owe anything to uh to developing countries i think it's it's not reparations obviously it's the truth and the truth is uh burning fossil fuels is good for your economy which sounds just detached from humanity so i'll rephrase it it's good for life it's good for human life in your country Cheap energy is good for human life. It's how you, it's how you, nature, <laughs> you don't survive. Someone needs to tell them, you don't survive by preserving nature. You survive by altering the environment of nature in order to better accommodate your needs. You build air conditioning and heating and refrigeration and dams and dikes and whatever else you need and and you know hurricane proof buildings or whatever you alter nature that's what it means to be human you don't we don't we don't run around naked in the woods and have the best life in the world our 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 primary means of survival is our functioning mind and we use that mind to alter our environment it's not the environment it's our environment and if you care about your people alter their environment give them the freedom give them recognize private property regardless of what the un tells you build your power plants that run on fossil fuels i mean nuclear is a good option too but no one likes that anymore right <laughs> build your power plants on fossil fuels it's reliable. It's energy dense. It'll give you cheap, reliable energy. You can run refrigerators and build hospitals and schools with lights. And like you can build your economy. This is how you grow. This is what is required for you to be in the wealthy nation category. And then 1,700 people won't die when there's flooding. You might be able to prevent the flooding altogether. You might be able to relocate people to other places. You might be able to, I mean, what half of Holland? I don't know what percentage of Holland is is under sea level. They technology manages. There are ways to mitigate all of this, but you got to be wealthy. You got to be successful. You can't be out, you know, hand plowing your fields. You can't live on six dollars a day and defeat the environment, and 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 modify it in a way that's and in any way comfortable. That's what we need to tell them. If you care about human flourishing, that's what you need to do. And reparations are just, a, they're kind of a plantation style thing. They're a way to keep you dependent on 
outside assistance. Stop listening to what we're telling you about not building fossil fuels and doing this green thing and that thing. Cut it out. Ignore the, all that stuff. We're going to leave you alone. We're going to explain to you the best of what we've done, by the way, which is like, hey, democracy's a means, not an end. Uh, individual rights matter. Private property matters. Don't worry about <laughs> fossil fuels. Like, just, just burn them. Do your thing. Get your cheap energy, lift your population out of abject poverty. And the next time there's a monsoon, you'll be in your cozy hotel room Skyping with us about, oh, it's kind of, there's a lot of weather going on outside today. That's how you defeat climate change. That's how you survive weather. Not begging for handouts from UN nations who are telling you you got to have solar panels and wind. All right, so that's, uh, I guess that's a synopsis of this article. I do, I think the reading of the article is better than the hour-long <laughs> reiteration of what's in the article, so I suggest you read it, but some of you don't want to read, so you won't, um, but it is over at unsafespace.com. It's called Lost and Damage at COP27. Uh, it will be on Substack probably not until tomorrow morning. We like to delay Substack releases um, at the moment. Uh, just to encourage people to be over on unsafespace.com, but it will be on Substack as well if you're a Substack subscriber. And as I mentioned, uh, if you want to look at the latest issue of the Unsafe Space Abstract or sign up for it, you can go do that uh, on unsafespace.com. Thank you all for uh, participating. Thank you for participating in chat. Oh, you know what I forgot to do is look at Rumble. Fluffy Little Clouds is in Rumble. I'm sorry, I mostly ignored you, but I'll look here. Uh, uh, Remis says, I would believe about the Chinese Jewish basketball player. <laughs> uh, Fluffy Little Cloud says, where does the new person come from? Uh, oh, yeah, from Marxism. This is back. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And 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 mentions that heart attack in England has been blamed on climate change. I forgot about that one. There's a whole list of stuff that's been blamed on climate change. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Can't get anywhere. I mean, if your if your goal is to administrate people, uh, if you want to be a little central planner, if you want to be a little tyrant, you want to be an administrator. You got to have something to administrate, which is which means, uh, hey, redistribution of wealth is a great way to do it. You can set up whole programs. You can make Western nations feel guilty for not paying Somalia, and uh, and everyone's happy. And uh, meanwhile, China and Russia will be off ignoring all the circus and building their own little authoritarian dystopias uh, independent of our lovely globalist ones. So thank you all for watching. Uh, I will see you next week. We're still going to do show next week. It's not like gone forever right now, but um, but I do encourage you, like I said, to go read. And uh, let's see. Oh, there was a show earlier today. That there was a Rebel Civics that Keith did about V for Vendetta. I think it was about Guy Fawkes Day. Uh, so if you're interested in that, check it out. And uh, I think I think there's an occasional levity on Friday, but I'm not 100% sure. There's definitely a newsletter, uh, an abstract coming out Saturday morning. So if you want it, you got to sign up before then. All right. Later, everyone. Have a good evening. And thanks again to everyone in chat. I will, uh, I will see you. Oh, Richard Pett says one more. Every time I breathe out, I feel guilty. Well, you know, Richard, that's the goal. So, bravo. Uh, <laughs> all right. Everyone, have a good one. Have a great evening. Thanks for being with me for this hour, and I will see you uh, on Monday for Narrative Dissonance. Take care. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there.
Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. It would be better for your health if you forgot what you just heard. That should be easy for someone of your intelligence. The following co-conspirators are here by order to watch CNN. Experts agree that 87,000 new tax collectors will make inflation feel like less of a problem. I think we can agree that the FBI's track record speaks for itself. If you think about it, only government-sanctioned experts should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake. Are you stupid or something?